So let's visualize the merit field in the space in front of us and ourselves surrounded by all the sentient beings in all the different, of all different realms, but appearing as human beings. Okay. So in samsara we have the dukkha that everybody experiences, birth, aging, sickness, death. And that's truly something, those four, truly something quite horrible. But if we look around, how much uh, dukkha do sentient beings cause each other? Through acting out of hatred, out of greed, whatever, then all this quite unnecessary suffering comes about. It's not due to uh, earthquakes or cyclones or the natural aging process or illness. It's the pain and suffering that sentient beings inflict on each other out of their confusion. So let's make a decision that not to do that ourselves, to be quite mindful of what our mental states are so that none of our words and actions harm others. and seeing how much unnecessary dukkha there is in samsara. Let's have a strong intention not to contribute to that ourselves, and instead to do our best to create harmony, to lift up the oppressed, to include the excluded. And to help uh, settle disputes. So with that kind of motion, uh, motivation of compassion, When we look around and see who is most capable of 
bringing about peace and harmony amongst living beings. We see that it's the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And so let's generate the intention to become like them. To completely purify our minds, develop all good qualities. and then make the welfare of living beings our primary focus. So may that also be our motivation for sharing the Dharma this evening. So this week's Lam Rim lesson on the news had the coincidence of uh, dealing with two different mass shootings. The first one was what happened in Connecticut at Sandy Hook, where 20-something first and second and third graders were murdered about four years ago by a gunman, a young man, you know, who killed his mother and then went to the school and started shooting it up. So there was one uh, trial going on about uh, regarding him. He he already pled uh, guilty and so he was convicted, uh, and the jury was to decide uh, whether he faces um, life without the possibility of parole or the death penalty. So they had uh, many of the parents of these kids testifying, and you can only imagine the grief that the parents had when their little, you know, first, second grade, they're really little, you know, and they're they're uh, so cute in a way. I mean, they're, they're little kids who run around, but they're also, uh, you know, quite cute. And so expressing their pain to the jury. I don't know if the gunman was in the courtroom. They made no mention of that. Um, I suspect he wasn't, but he, you know, I think it would have been good if he were there so he could really see the effect of his actions on others. But that's a, a very good example of pain uh, that is totally unnecessary. Yeah, what he did and the 
pain these families are experiencing. Um, none of that had to happen. Yeah. It's not a natural disaster or anything. As you saw that, you also saw the pain of attachment when we're attached to living beings and then something happens to them, the experience of, of pain that, that arises. Okay, so that was one thing that was going on, one trial that was going on. Then the second one was uh, regarding the Parkland High School shooting. Remember that one just a few years ago on Valentine's Day, and they killed, I forget how many kids, and, and injured 17, and yeah. So what was very interesting about that one, I mean, again, tragedy, just so unnecessary, and the parents really shattered and broken uh, because of, of what happened to their kids. But that was a, a trial to uh, regarding Alex Jones, okay? So he's the guy from InfoWars who uh, made up a big lie that made him a lot of money. Um, and he said that the whole thing at... Uh, Parkland. No, it's the other way around, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he... Yeah, the parents who were so upset, that was the Parkland parents. And then the ones the little, with the little kids, that they one family was suing Alex Jones because he he said that the whole... Um, Sandy Hook shooting was a hoax that it didn't happen, or and that or and that everybody there were actors. Okay, so the parents were actors, the kids were actors. There weren't really any kids who were killed, and so for four years he's been talking like this, and it's just been devastating for the parents um, because, you know, he has a big following on a radio station and yells and screams and, you know, puts his false story out there. And then, uh, you know, people start sending death threats to the parents. How dare you make up a scene like this just in order to make money and accusing the parents of all sorts of things. So, so he had, uh, you know, um, not shown up for, for some of the things he was supposed to show up for in the court. So, he was uh, guilty from that. And so this trial that was going on was to decide how much uh, damages, yeah. And what was so interesting is this guy, you know, the parents are just, they're crying, they're, they're you know, they're tragedy stricken. And... Uh, one of the mothers says, you know, I'm not an actress. 
I am not an actress. And the father said, my child existed. Yeah, because saying that it was all made up was like saying that their child never existed. He said, my child existed. Others saying, I'm not an actress. So he did not admit anything. He was shaking his head the whole time the parents were talking like this. And uh, then afterwards, he went back to his show, and he gave his radio show. And he talked about how, um, how he made up just a total other lie about what was happening in court. You know, and I convinced them that I didn't mean any harm. Yes, I made a mistake, but I didn't mean any harm. And the mother actually came up and hugged me. And I mean, he just made up some totally off the wall, crazy thing. You know, right after he got uh, fined $4 million for. Uh, you know, as damages to the family because he made a lot of money off of this, you know, by talking to so many people and drawing them in. And then he had all these products that he was selling online and all these people bought his products. He made millions of dollars off of telling this lie about the about Sandy Hook and, and the families. So he was fined $4 million. No, hold on. $4 million for, for the, um, the, the um, for enduring, you know. Yeah. And then he was fined an additional $45 million as punitive damages. So $49 million altogether. Yeah. Which... Uh, is not so great considering the amount of money his company has and how much money he made through his program. So it was just amazing to me that that he just continued with the lies, even after everything was set in court and he was fined $49 million dollars. And it makes you wonder, like, what's the story with this person? Does he know the difference between truth and falsity? Yeah. Or, or what is it? Yeah. What is, uh, you know, motivating him besides the money to inflict so much pain on somebody else with his lies? So I was thinking about it in terms of karma because I had been talking with somebody earlier about habits. So it seems like Alex Jones has the habit of lying. Yeah. And when we talk about karma, the um, of the different results, one result is to do the action again. Okay, so it, and this is often said to be the worst result because even if the action itself isn't so bad, 
the fact of doing it again and again and again makes it quite heavy and really ingrains it in the mind. Okay? So I was thinking sometimes we just kind of say, oh, well, you know, whatever our fault is, we say, oh, that's just a habit. As if, well, it's just a habit. It's it's nothing. It's not so bad. It's just a bad habit I have. Okay? But if you look at his bad habit and the uh, and the, the kind of suffering he inflicted on other people and that he himself will experience because of this suffering in this life and suffering in future lives because lying creates the cause for people not to believe you. Yeah, so in future lives, people not believing him, no matter what he says. So I was really thinking about that, you know, and how it's not so wise to just think, oh, well, it's a bad habit, you know. I hear people say, oh, well, I just lose my temper. It's a bad habit. That's just the way I am. Yeah, but you lose your temper again and again, and it keeps on planting those karmic seeds in the mind, you know, not only of the action, but of the motivation of the action. You keep reinforcing that that uh, same affliction. Yeah. And how dangerous that is just to say, oh, well, it's a bad habit. Mm. Yeah, not, not a big thing. So anyway, something, something to think about here. Um, and, and just both of these school shooting, well, one, yeah, involving school shooting, uh, and just showing how how much totally unnecessary suffering human beings inflict on each other, either by shooting them or by making up lies. Yeah. Totally unnecessary, as as if we don't have enough suffering already, you know, with natural disasters and, and having a body that, you know, ages and dies. Okay, so something just to to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that that was the Lamrim lesson on American news this week. <laughs> I'm sure there were many more, but that was kind of the one people were were focusing more on, I think. Okay, so we're still in the book Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature. We are approaching, uh, you know, we're we're moving along in it. So we're in the uh, chapter called Freedom from Cyclic Existence, and specifically in the section that's called The Two Obscurations. Yeah. So the previous section was stages leading to liberation and full awakening. And we talk there about how the uh, hearers and or shravakas and solitary realizers progress along the path and also 
how the bodhisattvas progress along the path. Okay, so here it's gonna it's talking this section about the two obscurations, which are what the shravakas and solitary realizers and bodhisattvas um, are trying to abandon. Okay, some of them want to abandon all of both obscurations. The shravakas and solitary realizers focus just on on one of them. Okay. So the minds of ordinary sentient beings are veiled by two types of obscurations, afflictive obscurations and cognitive obscurations. The former principally prevents liberation from samsara. The latter are mainly obstacles to full awakening. Okay, so, you know, the two kind of ends of the path, liberation or full awakening, so afflictive obscurations get in the way of liberation and cognitive obscurations in the way of um of uh of a full awakening okay that's not to say that the afflictive obscurations don't prevent full awakening they do you know and they're the they have to be eliminated first before the cognitive ones but because the cognitive ones are are the last ones to go, they're kind of seen as the chief, the chief things. Yeah. Okay. Um, the state of having eliminated afflictive obscurations is nirvana or liberation. The state of having additionally removed cognitive obscurations is full awakening, non-abiding nirvana, and Buddhahood. Okay. So afflictive obscurations are coarse and subtle self-grasping ignorance and its seeds and the three poisons of confusion, attachment, and animosity and their seeds. In short, afflictions and their seeds constitute afflictive obscurations. Okay, so um, the coarse and subtle self-grasping ignorance. The coarse one refers uh, grasping a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. The subtle one, um, well, yeah, and the subtle one, inherently existent persons and phenomena. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and in addition, the three poisons, okay, confusion, which is often translated as ignorance. Um, so here, when it's talked about in this way, since the self-grasping that apprehends inherent existence is already listed as self-grasping ignorance, the confusion here is emphasizing um, the confusion about karma, okay, and not not knowing what to practice, what to abandon, what is virtuous, what is not virtuous, okay, and so that creates uh, a whole lot of problems, as you can see through the two examples I ju- you know that I just talked about. Okay, attachment, clinging, attachment based on exaggerating the good qualities of someone or something and clinging on to it. 
and then animosity based on uh, based on the uh, exaggerating or projecting negative qualities that aren't there and wanting to get away from it or strike back at it in some way. Okay? And there's seeds. Okay, so the seeds here are the seeds of afflictions. Yeah, not this not the karmic seeds, but the seeds of afflictions that um, connect one moment of an affliction to another moment. Okay, so you're angry today, you're angry tomorrow, but in the middle, while you're asleep, you aren't angry. So your anger has gone into a seed form. And then the next day, you know, some little thing happens, you and you get angry again. Okay. So, so that's the afflictive obscurations. Yeah. Then the cognitive obscurations are more subtle and difficult to remove from the mind stream. And that's why first the afflictive, when somebody's practicing to become a Buddha, that first they remove the afflictive obscurations, then the cognitive obscurations. Actually, in the, di- the different tenant systems have lots of different schema about how you uh, eliminate these two. But in the Prasangika, first it's one, then it's the other. Uh, compared with afflictive obscurations, which are like onions in a pot, cognitive obscurations are like the smell that remains after the onions have been removed. You know how that is? Yeah. It's, it, onions in a pot is, you know, okay, but there can be really stinky things. Even you clean that away, the smell is still there. Okay. So there, that's the cognitive obscurations. So the cognitive obscurations are the latencies of self-grasping ignorance, the latencies of the three poisons, the mistaken dualistic appearances that arise from them, and the defilements of uh, defilement of apprehending the two truths as different entities. So all of these are abstract compa- uh, composites, not consciousnesses, although there's some debate about that. John Young Shepa has his own ideas. Okay, when we talk about the afflictive obscurations, most of those are consciousnesses, except the seeds of the afflictions. They are abstract composites. With the cognitive obscurations, none of them are cognitive consciousnesses. Okay, so what are these? The latencies of the self-grasping ignorance. So latencies and and seeds uh, can be very similar. The latencies, again, they're not consciousnesses. They're the they're the predispositions, you could say the tendencies, the imprints. Yeah, they're the smell of the onions uh, that are still there. So it's the latencies of the self-grasping ignorance. So the self-grasping ignorance and its seeds were afflictive obscurations. The latencies of the self-grasping ignorance are cognitive obscurations. Okay, 
And then the same thing about the three poisons, confusion, uh, attachment, and animosity. Yeah, The latencies of those three poisons. So they're not the consciousnesses. They're the residual... Yeah, they're the smell that's left, the residual stuff that's contaminating the mind. Okay. Then also the mistaken dualistic appearances that arise from them. Yeah. In other words, that things uh, appear to exist inherently, although they don't. And we're going to get into the word appearance uh, in the next paragraph, okay, what it, exactly it means. And then the defilements of apprehending the two truths as different entities. Because we have the, the uh, conventional truths or a veiled truths, and then the ultimate truths, which are um, emptinesses. The conventional or veiled truths are um, everything that's not emptinesses, basically. I mean, all the things that we see around us, things uh, that uh, that ignorance sees as true, even though they aren't, they do not exist as they appear, but ignorance thinks that they do. Okay, so there are the mistaken dualistic appearances that, that you still have the, you may have at the uh, higher levels for the arhats and also for the bodhisattvas and the eighth, ninth, and tenth grounds. They have removed the afflictive obscurations, but still, when they're not in meditative equipoise on emptiness, directly realizing emptiness, everything still appears to them as inherently existent. Okay? They know it's a false appearance, but it still appears that way. And because of, of that appearance, then the two truths, the veiled truths and the, and the ultimate truths, are seen as two different entities. In actual fact, they are one nature. That, that, that one nature does not mean they're the same. One nature means that if one of them is there, the other one at some point has to, always, has to also be there. So if you have an affliction, you have the emptiness of the affliction. Just like if you have a person, you have the emptiness of the person. So um, everybody who's not a Buddha, yeah, they, uh, they see these veiled truths and emptinesses as two different phenomena. They can't see that uh, that, you know, they know it, they know it, but they can't see it, that, uh, you know, that they are one nature, that they're inseparable. And when they see, uh, when they're in meditative equipoise and uh, focused on emptiness, they only see emptiness, no veiled truths appear. When they come out of their meditation and they're looking around and seeing everything, they only see all these veiled truths, they do not see their emptiness. Okay, so they can't see both of the two truths at the same time. Only the Buddha can do that. Okay, now, I know there's a lot of new words here. This whole chapter, this whole book, <laughs> this whole series filled with new words. 
So the word appearance does not adequately indicate the meaning of the Tibetan word nangwa, which can refer to either appearance or perception. Okay? By saying appearance of inherent existence, we may mistakenly think that the obscuration is external to our minds, that phenomena from their side appear inherently existent. Okay? Like, there's the appearance of inherent existence. We say, like, oh, there's the appearance of pink. Pink is outside, pink appears to me. So we say the appearance of inherent existence as if inherent existence were outside and it's appearing to us. Okay? No, that's not what's happening. Okay? First of all, because things are not inherently existent. So inherent existence is not outside. Yeah. In fact, inherent existence doesn't even exist at all. Okay. Um, whereas the obscuration is associated with our minds, we perceive inherent existence, which does not exist at all. So it says the appearance of inherent existence, but it's actually something, it's... Appearance isn't exactly the right word. Perceive isn't either, because with perceive, we kind of think, well, maybe it's a consciousness, which it's not. Okay. But it's the, the, um, pollution on our mind so that when we apprehend things, uh, you know, they seem to be inherently existent. So you may so the arhats, the the pure pure ground bodhisattvas, they've realized emptiness directly in meditative equipoise. But when they arise from their meditative equipoise and look around, yeah, there's still the appearance of inherent existence to them. Yeah, that hasn't been eliminated yet. And they they know that appearance or that perception because the problem is the mind, not the object. So they know that that's false, but it's still there. So when we say that those aryas see everything as like illusions, that's what it means, yeah. Uh, an illusion is something that appears to exist one way, but exists in another way. So when, uh, you know, outside of their meditative equipoise, when Buddha Bear appears to them, yeah, uh, Buddha Bear, you know, seems in their mind when they're apprehending Buddha Bear, uh, that there's an, an inherently existent Buddha bear, but they know that that is totally false, that that doesn't exist. Okay. And so that's what seeing as illusion means. And it has to be as like illusion. Yeah. Cause if you say objects are illusions, then you're kind of implying they're non-existent. But if you say they are like ex- illusions, then you're saying they appear one way, but they don't exist in that way. Okay. 
So this is quite important to understand. Okay, so by saying appearance of inherent existence, uh, we may mistakenly think that the obscuration is external to our minds, that phenomena from their side appear inherently existent, like radiating out inherent existence. But the obscuration is actually associated with our mind. Okay, if It's like our mind's the mirror and it, the mirror has dirt on it. So that everything then that's reflected in the mirror doesn't appear properly. Mm -hmm. So we perceive inherent existence, which does not exist at all. Okay, so this is also an important point. Okay, inherent existence has never existed, it never will exist. So realizing the emptiness of inherent existence is actually just realizing things as they actually are. The realization of emptiness doesn't make the objects empty. They're already empty. The realization just sees them as they actually exist. Okay? In meditative equipoise. So please keep this in mind when we talk about the appearance of inherent existence. Okay, so the aspect of the mind that continues to have mistaken appearance of inherent existence is called manifest cognitive obscurations. Okay, so the aspect of the mind, we've realized emptiness, and we still, you know, to our minds, things still seem inherently existent. That's called uh, manifest cognitive obscurations. While the latencies left from the afflictions that cause these appearances are called factors of a seed. Okay, latency and seed are, you know, uh, all, all seeds are latencies, but not all latencies are seeds. I think that's the way it goes, but they're very close. Okay, so the latencies are subtle tendencies. By their power, the mind continues to have the appearance or the perception of inherent existence. Okay, so the mind has this cloud, and that's how it continues to relate to to veiled truths. Mistaken dualistic appearances are the aspect of the mind that continues to have the mistaken appearances of all internal and external phenomena as existing inherently. Okay? This aspect of the mind obscures all six consciousnesses, the five sense consciousnesses and the mental consciousness. Okay? So even now... You know, we still have the cognitive obscurations and the manifest ones. So things still appear to us uh, as inherently existent. And then with the afflictive obscurations, we grasp that appearance is true. Okay, that's with the afflictive obscuration of self-grasping ignorance. Okay, is this clear? Yeah, the latency from the self-grasping, yeah, makes the appearance or the perception. And then us ordinary beings who still have the 
afflictive obscurations, we then accept that appearance as true. And that's for all of our consciousnesses, our eye, eye, you know, visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, tactile, and mental consciousnesses, all are befuddled in that way. So both ordinary beings and aryas who are not in meditative equipoise on emptiness have these mistaken dualistic appearances. The only consciousness in sentient beings' continuums that lacks them is the Arya's exalted wisdom in meditative equipoise on emptiness. Okay, so all the other consciousnesses of sentient beings from the hell realms to the highest bodhisattvas just before they attain awakening, yeah, they still have these mistaken dualistic appearances. Okay. With the appearance perception of inherently existent objects, one part, uh, or I'm sorry, within the appearance or perception of inherently existent objects, one part exists, one part does not. The flower exists, but its being inherently existent does not. So the flower is not a cognitive obscuration. Yeah, the flower is just a flower. It's minding its own business. Yeah, but its appearance, its appearing to be inherently existent is a cognitive obscuration. Okay, so the flower is the part that exists. Yeah, its perception appearance as being inherently existent. Yeah, that you know, there's no such thing as inherent existent. It doesn't exist. Hmm? When the mind is freed from this mistaken appearance or mistaken um, perception, conventionally, conventionally existent things do not cease to exist. Rather, they no longer appear inherently existent. Okay, so when we realize emptiness directly, yeah, that, um, like I said before, it doesn't make things empty, yeah, and it also doesn't make veiled truths non-existent, yeah. The, the realization of emptiness can uh, destroy the grasping at, uh, at true existence, at inherent existence, and the realization of emptiness also is what cleanses the mind from the latencies of inherent existence. Okay, so the veiled things still exist. Yeah, veiled truths still exist. Yeah, but to the perspective of uh, a Buddha who no longer has these cognitive obscurations, there's no longer the appearance or perception of them as inherently existent. To the arhats and the pure ground bodhisattvas, there is. So the defilements of apprehending the two truths as different entities prevents seeing all phenomena, veiled truths, and their emptinesses simultaneously. 
Okay. Since our hearts and pure ground bodhisattvas have this defilement, they cannot simultaneously cognize the two truths. Yeah. If they, if they perceive one directly, the other one they can't perceive directly. Okay. But if they perceive, let's say, the emptiness of something, then after they arise from their meditative equipoise, they're no longer, you know, perceiving emptiness. But that mind influences how they perceive veiled truths. And so that's why uh, they then, it's said that they see them as like illusions. Okay, so the, the arhats and the pure ground bodhisattvas must alternate consciousnesses. Their meditative equipoise on emptiness sees only emptiness. Veiled truths, which are the substrata or the base of that emptiness, that is, uh, they are the objects that are empty. Yeah. So these veiled truths do not appear to that mind focused non-conceptually and directly on emptiness. Mm-hmm. When these aryas arise from their meditative equipoise on emptiness, in the time of subsequent attainment, when they're walking around and doing things, uh, they know conventionalities but cannot perceive their emptiness directly. Yeah, so they're walking around and they can, you know, they can cook lunch and they can vacuum and do all these things. Uh, yeah, they're not perceiving the emptiness of the objects at that time, but their mind is influenced by having had that direct perception. So they're perceiving things as like illusions. But because this defilement uh, has been eradicated in Buddhas, in, in, in Buddhahood, Buddhas can directly and simultaneously know the two truths. So they're the only ones who can do that. Yeah. Latencies and, of attachment and other f- afflictions also cause arhats to have dysfunctional behaviors of body and speech. So this is something quite interesting, yeah. So we're we're talking about arhats here, yeah, having dysfunctional behaviors of body and speech that are breaches of discipline. So, for example, arhats; these are beings who have attained liberation, yeah. Um, Arhats may inadvertently jump around owing to the latency of attachment. They may spontaneously call someone a name owing to the latency of anger. And their clairvoyance, uh, or their supersensory perception, may be unclear owing to the latency of ignorance. Okay, so it's interesting. Due to the latencies that are still contaminating the mind, yeah. Although these arhats do not have any negative intention at all, yeah, due to the latencies, due to the habit of when they, you know, uh, before they realized emptiness, 
then they still have these habits. So uh, they say that an arhat, let's say who had been a monkey before, yeah, not not directly in the life before becoming an arhat, but some previous time, then there's just the the habit to, you know, jump around and swing from trees, okay? Um, yeah, and the ones who have some kind of, of uh, before a habit with anger, or we take Alex Jones with lying, then, uh, you know, even they become an arhat, yeah, the tendency to lie or to call people names, even though they don't have any kind of afflictive motivation. Okay, so it's just the latency that, that causes that. And then the lack of clarity in their uh, supersensory perception is due to the latency of ignorance. So these infrequent occurrences are not due to any negative intention or to ignorance on Arhat's part, because they have eliminated all afflictions. So Chandrakirti's auto-commentary to the supplements says, Although Arhats have abandoned afflictions, they have the latencies due to which they will jump as they did when formerly they were monkeys. Those latencies are overcome only in omniscience and Buddhahood. Okay, but not in others. Okay, so uh, I don't know. I might wind up if I'm if I become an arhat, you know, constantly blowing my nose because of allergies, you know, or who knows? You know, people, you uh, look at some of your habits. You know, maybe somebody's going to be dancing around with Buddha bear as an arhat. Yeah, it could be worse things, but, uh, yeah. Okay. So the same idea is also found in later Pali commentaries. They explain that although arhats have eliminated all obscurations, all obscurations due to afflictions, they still have the latencies of afflictions which can induce conduct that is a breach of decorum. This is because unlike the Buddha, arhats have not eliminated the obstruction to all-knowing and thus do not know all existence. Yeah. So the, the Pali uh, tradition says that um, even to a Buddha, a Buddha is all-knowing, but in the sense that a Buddha can know everything, but they don't perceive everything at the same time. They have to turn their mind to something. But when they turn their mind to it, then they, there's, they can perceive everything that exists. The Sanskrit tradition says that the Buddha, Buddhas are omniscient and all the things simultaneously appear to their minds. Okay. But here... You know, the Pali tradition is, unlike the Buddhas, arhats have not eliminated the obstruction to all-knowing and thus do not know all of existence. So the commentary uh, to the Udana says, uh, vasana, which is latency, 
is a mere capacity to behave in certain ways similar to the behavior of those who still have defilements. It is engendered by the defilements that have been harbored in the mind from beginningless time and remain in the mental continuum of the arhat even after the defilements have been abandoned. Yeah, they remain the the what remains is a mere habitual tendency. So the vasanas or, or latencies are not found in the mental continuum of a Buddha who has uh, removed the defilements by abandoning the obstruction to all-knowing, but they are found in the minds of hearers or shavakas and solitary realizers. So uh, uh, something to correct in, in that verse uh, the vasanas are not found in the mental continuum of a Buddha who has removed the defilements. To put it in the present tense doesn't work because he has removed them. Okay, so an example is the bhikkhu Palindavaka. Uh, Although he was an arhat, and had eradicated conceit and contempt, he continued to address fellow bhikshus as outcasts. You know, uh, so you have a community of bhikshus, and then somebody who's, you know, oh, he's an arhat, is still calling people, you know, you're, you're an untouchable, you're a lower caste, you know, having you know, having this kind of um, bad attitude and bad speech, not because of any negative intention at all. Okay. Now, I wonder how the other bhikshus took it. Yeah. Did they, could they say to themselves, oh, he has no intention, this is just because of a latency, or do they still get offended? Who is he telling me I'm lower caste? Da, na, 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 na. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Because people may still get upset even though he has no intention. Like now, it happens too. Okay. Even we aren't yet our hearts. So this occurred. Um, he continued to address fellow bhikshus as uh, outcasts. This occurred owing to the force of predispositions or latencies established by his, habitu his habitual behavior as a Brahman during the 500 previous lifetimes. Okay? So they say, oh, being a, born as a Brahman, you know, you're upper caste, that must be due, of, due to good karma. But in his case, it made a lot of weird imprints on his mind. Some schools speak of non-afflictive ignorance. Okay, the prasangikas uh, do not. Yeah, or if they hear that term, they're not referring to what the lower schools say. The, to the vibhasakas, this mainly the non-afflictive ignorance mainly impedes attaining all-knowing, and consists of the four causes of non-knowingness. Okay. So this is how 
uh, you know, the Vibhashaka see the arhats and how, why they say that the, the Buddha is all knowing, but the arhats are not all knowing. Okay. Because they have this non-afflictive ignorance. So there's four causes of uh, non-knowingness or four ways that this ignorance, uh, the non-afflictive ignorance influences things. So the first is the non-afflictive ignorance of the profound and subtle qualities of a Buddha. So an arhat knows a lot about a Buddha, but not all of the profound and subtle qualities of the Buddha because they still have that non-afflictive ignorance, okay? That impedes knowing everything. Okay, the second and third of the fourth are ignorance due to distant place or time of the object. So the the Vibhasakas say that an arhat, you know, something's very far away, they can't see it, whereas the Buddha can. Or if something happened, you know, long time ago or will happen a long time in the future, then uh, the arhats can't see it, but the Buddha can. And then the fourth um, cause of non-knowingness is ignorance of the nature of the object. Okay, such as the subtle details of karma and its effects. Okay, so the, you know, to the Vibhasakas and some of the other lower schools who, who assert non-afflictive uh, ignorance. Yeah, it, it's what prevents, it's a kind of ignorance that prevents seeing all these different things like the subtle and gross qualities of the Buddha, things that are far away in time and place, and um, the, the nature of the object, such as knowing all the details of, of karma and its effects. According to Prasangikas, non-afflictive ignorance refers to the latencies of ignorance and is not a consciousness. So the Vibhasakas say two kinds of of ignorance, they're both consciousness, as the the Prasangikas say. It, the, you know, you hear the term non uh, non afflicted ignorance, but it's not a consciousness. Okay, it's just the latencies of ignorance. Okay, any questions, comments so far? Yeah. doesn't mention Arya Bodhisattvas having the same problem as these arhats. <laughs> so what's, mm. how can you comment on that? I've never, I haven't heard it described in terms of the Bodhisattva, the pure ground Bodhisattvas. I've heard it described in terms of the arhats. So I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, but if the bodhisattvas don't perceive it, it could be because of the bodhicitta that refrain, you know, helps them to refrain from those kinds of actions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think um, seeing things like illusions uh, includes seeing things as dependently arising? Like considering all the factors of mm. how things exist, it's not really mentioned much. It it 
Yeah. It's um it's kind of getting there, but I don't think you're actually seeing dependent arising directly, but you're seeing probably seeing that things, you know, if they aren't empty, I mean if they aren't truly existent, then they must be dependent arising. Yeah, but there's they still have some kind of weird appearance like that. By the way, you know, when they say illusion, illusion like appearances, it doesn't mean like appearances, you know, when you're on an acid trip. Yeah, because people hear that and it's like, oh, these bodhisattvas, they're like me, you know, on the acid trip and, you know, seeing colors and things going here and there and sparkling and, you know. So that's not the meaning of, of illusion-like appearance. And seeing things as just totally chaotic and bouncing around, that's also not the meaning of, of illusion-like appearances. Okay? Yeah. And it's also not like seeing things as just, uh, you know, a bunch of little particles or stuff like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Where would we classify um, uh, contaminated, contaminated karma and its seeds in the two obscurations? Oh, the karma and its seeds are not either of the those of the obscurations. Okay, the car- karma and the seeds of karma are a uh, the second noble truth. They're true origins, but they're not afflictive obscurations. Yeah. And they're they're not cognitive obscurations either. They um they they can obscure the mind, but I think they they say for arhats, yeah, arhats may still have the the seeds of contaminated karma on their mind stream, but those seeds cannot ripen to throw a rebirth because they don't have the links of craving and clinging. Your example from the beginning of habits, yeah, those would um, would still be there. You still need to kind of clear them, so won't they obscure? Well, that's why they're called cognitive obscurations. You know, these the these are the latencies. Okay, they're the latencies of the afflictions. So, the latencies. You know, they may be related to karmic seeds, but karmic seeds may just be too gross. These latencies are are, are much, much subtler, okay? And also, as they progress on the path, yeah, they're they're also neutralizing a lot of the karmic seeds. Okay. You have to ask somebody else. Yeah. It seems like they might, they would obscure, but they're not one of the two obscurations. Okay. 
like self, the self-centered mind certainly obscures the mind, but it's not one of the two obscurations. Okay. So it's not, I think a habit is probably much, much grosser than, than these latencies. Yeah. But you, that, you can put that on your list of Geshe questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about this, the defilement of apprehending the two truths as different entities mm-hmm. and what the cause of that is and, and how that relates to the mistaken dualistic appearance that arises from the latencies of afflictions. Like does Yeah, they're all definitely related, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you have mistaken dualistic appearances of things appearing inherently existent, then you know, to think that you can see the two truths simultaneously when one is emptiness, you know, and the other one is is veiled truths, you, you're not going to be able to do that. Yeah. And the, was there another part to the question? I'll just it, it, the text explicitly identifies the latency of the latencies of the afflictions causing the mistaken dualistic appearance. Yeah. But it doesn't identify the cause of the explicitly identify the cause of the defilement of apprehending the two truths as different entities. It's the latencies there too. Okay. Yeah. So I got a little bit stuck here um, in this in particular with the word defilement. Mm-hmm. It seems like some translators or some writers will sometimes use defilement to mean affliction. Yes, it's one of those words that has multiple meanings. Some people translate it as stains. Some people as defilements. Sometimes defilements includes afflictions. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But about the karma, I think... uh, you know the the for example a, a buddha may have karma connection with some sentient beings that is stronger than a karma connection with other sentient beings okay so that kind of karma would not be obscuring a buddha's mind it's just because of the uh frequency or type of relationship they had with somebody before, you know, and it would also be coming from the the side of the sentient being, yeah, that that sentient being, you know, because of uh, karma being the actions that were done before, not the seeds, okay? So we use the word karma in a variety of ways. It usually refers to the strict meaning is the action. We often use it to refer to the karmic seeds, okay? And sometimes we refer, use the word karma to refer to the result of the action. So it gets a little bit confusing there. Because yeah? when you were saying about karma uh, obscuring the mind, I was thinking karmic seeds obscuring the mind. Yeah, because the karma, the actions were done before, maybe when they were sentient beings. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking of contaminated karma. 
And also, like, we do purification of all these negative actions and why it's not classified as something that obscures if you've done all these negativities in your mind stream and it's not part of this afflictive obscuration. That's just the way they chose to categorize things. So this is uh, the category categorization under which Abhidhamma kind of, is that a technical definition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they talk about the two obscurations, this is how they're explained. Although, like I said, sometimes that some people might say that cognitive obscurations are consciousnesses. Yeah, but the general thing is that they aren't. So the next section, I would prefer to wait on because there's um, there's quite a bit to explain on that. Yeah, so maybe we'll end now. Yeah, unless you have other questions or comments or anything. Yeah, Venerable Losong and I were talking earlier today, and he had a he brought up a question that. Um, I'd like to know, um, and that is in the earlier section we were talking about um, hearers and uh, or sravakas and solitary realizers and how they progress through these stream enter, once returner, non returner. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that perfectly mapped to path of seeing, path of meditation? Um, it seems like. You, it's clear that the stream enterer is on the path of seeing, but then yeah. the demarcations are interesting. It, it, there isn't a line that says, then they enter the path of meditation. Yeah. I just wonder if you know of a yeah. specific map. No, I haven't seen it where they say, oh, they, because going from a stream enterer to once returner is um, by decreasing the strength of sensual uh, at- uh, desire and malice. And I've never heard any, you know, kind of, well, when you've eliminated exactly this much, then that's comparable to the path of meditation. I haven't heard that. Yeah. It's a different formulation. Is this spelled out in the 20 sanghas? I've never studied that, but I'm just wondering. Yeah. This has to do with the 20 sanghas, which is, uh, if you like math and puzzles, 20 sanghas is really fun. Yeah. If you don't, then you get confused. But 20 sanghas is talking about all the different ways that somebody can go to our hardship. Yeah. And some, you know, some people just go very directly, you know, kind of, or, or very methodically, you know, first, approaching stream enter, then fruit of stream enter, approaching once returner, fruit of once returner, approaching um, non-returner, fruit of non-returner, approaching our hot, fruit of our hot. Some people do like that. But then there's some people who can go from uh, from one of the parts of stream enter, uh, to non-returner and kind of skip over uh, runs returners and, uh, you know, how many lifetimes they will uh, uh, 
spend in different realms uh, as they're eliminating the defilement. So there's a whole lot of permutations. Yeah. And it's quite kind of fun to to look at it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Venerable, what is meditative equipoise? That's when um, you are focused single-pointedly. Uh, here we usually talk about meditative equipoise on emptiness. Maybe it can be on other things, but usually we talk about it in terms of emptiness. And so it's the ability to, to focus um, single-pointedly on, on emptiness without falling asleep, without any distraction. You're completely immersed in emptiness and nothing else is appearing to that mind. Although some, um, we've been having discussion with some people, some, it seems like the term meditative equipoise on emptiness could, in some cases, also appear to to indicate somebody with an inferential realization of emptiness who's focused on that single-pointedly, yeah, as well as someone who is uh, has a direct perception of emptiness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah? The sharp faculty practitioners go the wisdom side of the path first to make yes. sure that enlightenment is possible. Right. What keeps the modest faculty practitioners going? Faith. Faith. Faith, yeah. And so it doesn't mean blind faith, but they have faith in the Buddha, they have faith in their teacher, they understand something about the path, and they have some kind of convictional faith about that. Yeah. Because they talk of, you know, disciples... Uh, faith disciples and wisdom disciples. And they talk about this, uh, the, the Pali tradition talks about it too. Okay, let's dedicate. Okay, so f- faith doesn't always mean blind faith. Yeah. Yes, but it's also much harder. Yeah, I mean we're we're practicing now. Do any of us have a, an inferential realization of emptiness? You know, but we keep going. Yeah. We have some kind of confidence in that the Buddha knows what he was talking about and. We understand some basics about emptiness. Mm 